And welcome into this episode of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover with you from Alabama. We've got Kyle Crooks on the far side of the screen from Florida. And in the center of the screen, we go to South Carolina and we say hello to Debbie Antonelli, who joins us from her home studio. And Debbie, we're thrilled you joined us for the show. How's everything going? Guys, thank you so much for including me. Everything's going great. Uh, you guys look terrific. It uh, looks like things are going well. Things are starting to get on the uptick, right? So uh, hopefully we're going to have some sports uh, soon, college sports soon. So, Debbie, you've been calling WNBA games from your house, um, and, and I'm sure that's been an interesting experience. What, what are the challenges of calling games during this COVID-19 <laughs> era? I'm sure there's a lot of them. Well, yeah, there are a lot of challenges to it, but uh, I feel very fortunate and uh, very grateful that NBA TV asked me to serve as one of the analysts for their package this summer. Um, and then I'm thankful to ESPN and the management at ESPN for allowing me to do so. Um, the The biggest challenge initially was being home with three boys. And uh, I had a sign on my door that said, I'm on the air and there's a list of things that you cannot do while I'm on the air. And uh, they were great. They complied with all of it. So I thought that was really kind of interesting. But uh, I can see my partner in the uh, computer screen. So that does help with the body language part of it, which you guys know is so important when you're sitting next to someone. Um, so there, there are some challenges with that. There's a very minimal, slight delay. There's a couple of times um, of misidentifying a player, but then instantly figuring out that I said the wrong name. That wouldn't happen if you were sitting courtside, most likely. Uh, and people have been pretty gracious about that for the most part. Uh, but uh, it, it's pretty cool to be home and call games. After being on the road for 33 years, calling this great sport that I love, I never thought we'd have a model like this. And uh, it, it's better than not calling games. You mentioned that rhythm of having a partner and not sitting next to them. And you said you, you could see them, I assume, Zoom or Skype, whatever you're using. Will you hold up a finger or something to say, I have a point, uh, I want to step in here, so you're, there isn't that constant stepping on each other? Is is there anything physical that you do to, to show each other that you want to say something? Uh, the only time that there might be some of that interchange might be if we're going to break. Like, usually the play-by-play would take it to break, but if there's a replay, then sometimes, um, you know, I'll, I'll just say, I got it, or, you know, uh, my partner will point at me saying, go ahead, you take it. That's probably where the most body language comes in. Otherwise, I do reference uh, looking at uh, Tiffany Green has been my partner recently. I, I do reference looking at Tiffany during the game. And of course, you know, we're having a conversation and we're talking about a lot of different things. So I find myself looking at her, looking at the TV monitor, looking at her, looking at the monitor quite a bit, probably more so than if you were sitting next to someone because you just inherently would, you know, feel the rhythm of that person's um, interaction. I know for all the years you've been in television, you always have a great respect for the crew, but this year you've been able to uh, kind of get all the equipment and set it up at your house. Just first of all, what did they have to send you to make this home studio possible? And then how'd you go about setting it all up? Well, uh, I have a broadcast kit and Ross Productions designed it and put it together and, and sent it to me. So I have um, what would typically be our box that we'd have in front of us with our audio set on and then there's a, a what I call the red box that has a, a lot of things attached to it. And then I have a, um, a, a MacBook Pro and they sent us a television. Um, and then I just um, have um, another small television that I use for stats. So I hook my computer into that. Uh, everything is connected together. And 
uh, it was pretty simple. Even I could connect it all. And, and uh, now we all know how to get online um, and um, the live stream when it's time for the game. We usually uh, get set up a couple of hours before to make sure everything's working right. And so far, um, you know, it's all good. I have a um, we do hardwire to um, the the Internet. So, um, you know, I've got a 75 foot cable that runs from where my uh, router is to to this studio area. And I selected this part of my house, which is not my office, but I picked this because I thought it would be the quietest place when all the guys were still here. So um, I've got two that are in college that have already uh, that left last week. So uh, it's a lot more quieter around the Antonelli house now than it has been. That certainly sounds good. And the WNBA players and coaches, of course, in the bubble, you're at home. So I know for you, a large part of your preparation for college basketball or WNBA games during the regular season would be just going to practice and hearing stories firsthand and getting to see these players up close. So how are you preparing while being so far away? You know what, guys, that's my favorite part is practice and interaction with the players and coaches. And, of course, I love the games. Um, but that part of it, the preparation, is something that I've always enjoyed going to the gym. So I do miss that part. Uh, the, um, the WNBA has done an incredible job with all the content that they have housed on one source that allows us to either have a live Zoom or have uh, the ability to go to the uh, content network and pick up a, a Zoom that maybe we missed. Uh, I'll I tell you guys, it's amazing how, how great the PR and everything's on time and the players are all engaging, the coaches are terrific and there's a Zoom call pregame, there's a Zoom, Zoom call postgame. Sometimes there's a Zoom after shoot around. So there might be three times that you could access a coach actually on game day. Um, and and uh, I have, fortunately for me, um, this is the 24th year of the WNBA. I've been very lucky. Uh, my first five were the Charlotte Sting. My last 18 were with the Indiana Fever. So I've been in the league since the beginning. So most of the players, uh, I've called their games in college. Uh, there's some that I haven't. Uh, there's some international players that I'm, I'm not as familiar with at the beginning. But uh, I, I feel, you know, from the ABL, which, were the, which was the pro league before the WNBA, I was the analyst on the national game of the week uh, on Fox for that. And then the WNBA for 24 years, I've got some really good relationships with players and coaches and I've fallen back on that uh, in my preparation now. And just overall, since the inception of the WNBA in the mid nineties, just how much have you seen, not just the play grow, but also the coverage grow locally, nationally it, it, it definitely the word of the WNBA it's much bigger and they, they market their players I would assume a lot better than they did back then um, how would you see just the growth of the league I think women's basketball overall the product is so good uh, I think that's you know the way I see the game through that lens you know I used to be a director of marketing at two major institutions Kentucky and Ohio State and I have grown in my um, uh, my fever for the product you know the players can score and i care about offense and i think offense is the greatest way to grow to, to grow the game and when you watch uh the the players in the wnba you see uh you know how athletic and how skilled they are and how hard they work what great iq what sets they can score and all these different actions that they can be put in and we continue to evolve and get better and now with the new cba that the players have signed which is going to um, hopefully put more money in their pockets and allow them maybe to have an option to stay here and work on their game. 
um, and instead of going over to play um, internationally, there, there could be a chance for us to see maybe, like for example, I, I'll give you a huge difference. Um, I just had this conversation with Derek Fisher, the coach for the Lake uh, for the Sparks, and Derek won five championships in the NBA, and so he's in his second year and. I just had this conversation with him because I'm sure like you guys are watching the NBA playoffs. If you watch ball screen defense, it's all gap. Okay, so the screener's defender is in the gap. There's no under overhead strap ice jam switch, right? There's none of that going on. Like we have all these different ways to guard a ball screen. They're just guarding a ball screen sitting in the gap. Well, if you watch the NBA, they can make all these plays on the top of the floor. They have range from three point. They can score off a screen. They can dribble into their shot and hit a three. Um, they can snake behind a screen. You see some of that in the WNBA, but you don't see as many players that can do it. Obviously, the guys uh, are so talented, but the women are very close. And so um, when I'm watching the WNBA and I see all these different ball screen defenses, I start thinking about how important the product is and why I've always felt like scoring is the most important thing in the women's game. And, you know, last night uh, Chicago went over 100 points. Last night I had the Las Vegas game. They scored 99. Uh, I, I think that that's a good thing for the game and that helps the product. And that certainly brings more people's attention to the, the women's pro game. So all those pieces go together uh, inside the marketing plan and just the name recognition of a Candace Parker or, or somebody like a Diana Taurasi. And, and you mentioned the, the preparation that goes into calling these games. How much, when, when you talk to a coach, do you like to really break down the X's and O's? Because you can, you can tell you love that part of it, and that's why you're so great. Um, but how much do you really like to get to the nitty-gritty of it with a coach when you're in a conference call or at a shoot-around? You know, on a conference call, it's a little more challenging because they don't always want to give up their game plan. Um, but when I get them on the phone, then I'd be more direct and asking them specific things just because they know uh, because of my relationship, you know, uh, they know that I'm going to edit what they say or I understand what they mean. I'm not going to put them in a bad situation. And, uh, you know, it takes time. I mean, to be in the business a long time to be able to earn that if I was new and just starting my career, it might be more challenging for them to feel like they can trust because you guys know how competitive coaches are and, and how how badly they want to win. And if you burn one or if you, you, you know, if you do something that's not credible or appropriate, then you, you're going to be in trouble for the rest of your career because that will carry with you. But uh, I, I've, I feel like that's the part that I really enjoy the most. Uh, I usually in the summers go to NBA clinics because I think I, I get the, uh, the most out of those in terms of um, strategies, but also the vernacular that is being used at the NBA level helps me a lot. Um, Brendan Sir is a really great friend of mine with Coaching You, and I highly recommend uh, going to their clinics and paying attention to what he does because I've learned a lot of basketball from just sitting in the gym and listening to guys like that that have won championships, that have been around the best players. So uh, I do like the intimate detail of the game. I think that's, um, especially when we get to the fourth quarter, um, that's, you know, what separates the te good teams from the really great teams is some of that geometry that's involved in the game and, and some of that heart and character and that, you know, that ability to make a winning play under duress. Well, you mentioned you're a marketing executive, first of all, with Kentucky and Ohio State. Of course, you played at NC State. Uh, where was broadcasting kind of on your radar uh, when you were in college or your first steps in those jobs at Kentucky and Ohio State? And how did this all begin for you, Debbie? You know what, guys? Uh, I, I feel so blessed to be sitting here after 
this will be my 33rd year calling college basketball once we uh, tip it off this year. It's just amazing to believe that um, that I've been able to take a, a, a passion for the game, just the love for the game, and turn it into a broadcasting career. When I started way back in my first game was in November of 1988, there, there was one game on TV for women's basketball. That was the CBS National Championship, which I watched as a player. I never got to play on TV as a player. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I started out wanting to be an athletic director. And then I had this parallel track of being able to work on my career as, as trending towards trying to be an athletic director. And then I got this chance to call some games. And I don't know if you guys play golf, but, you know, when you hit that sweet nine iron, uh, you stick it on the flag. I mean, it could be one shot all round that you remember. Well, that's what broadcasting felt like me at felt like for me at first uh, I I love the game I wasn't too far removed from playing I was thinking about coaching I did have opportunities to coach uh, and I, I thought you know I'm gonna stay on this path to be an athletic director and I just kept calling games and then the, the real break for me besides getting an opportunity to, to um, call my first game was uh, when I went to Ohio State to, to be their director of marketing my years at Ohio State coincided with Katie Smith's four years in college. Now, you know, Katie Smith is a Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer, so I've known Katie since she was in high school. I think uh, I met her when she was a sophomore in high school when she came to Kentucky basketball camps. And um, when I got to Ohio State, she was the number one recruit in the country, and Ohio State had this really good following and a great program. But uh, I had been doing television at the University of Kentucky and there weren't any TV options for me at Ohio State. So I went to the local cable company and I asked the local cable company if they could produce sports. And you know, the Ohio State brand obviously carries a, a lot of weight. And I actually reported to, directly to Archie Griffin for my four years uh, as the director of marketing at Ohio State. So it was pretty easy for whenever you needed something to, to get in the car with Archie and go, you always are going to get in the door and it's a hard no to tell Archie Griffin no about anything with Ohio State. So I certainly knew how to take advantage of my resources. But I went to the local cable company and I simply asked them if they could produce sport and they said they would try and uh, figure out if they could. And so I never can remember exactly what the number was, but I, I think it was like $50,000 to produce eight women's basketball games. Now, Think about this time. This is in the early 90s. Uh, there's not a lot of television out there in college sports. ESPN is still a little over 10 years old. So there's not all the networks and all the options that we have now. And so um, $50,000, I went out and sold the inventory as the director of marketing for Ohio State, created this eight game package, and then I did the games. And I was able to stay on the games and, and um, I, I did that and, and just renewing those packages every year was very simple because it was a very successful uh, package for not only the, uh, the team, but for the advertisers as well. And, um, you know, then I started to get some calls um, about doing some games regionally. And then uh, our first son was born and I thought, you know, I'm going to give this TV thing a full time go. And um, my oldest son is 25. So for 25 years, uh, I've been full time uh, in, in broadcasting and, and I'm it's very grateful and I humbly sit here thankful for every single person that's hired me to give me a chance to work games well you do a tremendous job and everyone knows you as a color analyst mostly but how much play-by-play -play have you done before in your career you know not too much um, 
you know, I decided a long time ago that, uh, you know, there were options for me to work sideline in football or to do other sports in the spring. And, you know, I have three boys and I decided that my three guys were going to be my agents and I was going to play, uh, stay in the game of, of basketball because that's what I loved. And I, I just stuck to being an analyst and uh, I can do play by play if, if, uh, if you know, if I had to, I'm ready to do it. Of course, I'm ready to do any job that uh, that that uh, anyone needs me to do. But um, I, I prefer to be the analyst because I really love the breakdown of the game. And you know, I, I look at it like um, you know, a, a play-by-play is a who and the what, and I'm going to tell you the how and the why. And I and I take that responsibility uh, very seriously. What, what was the key for you to get to so many networks? I mean, you've worked for just about every network yeah. under the ESPN umbrella. You worked for CBS. I, I've read that you you never had an agent. You didn't think you needed one. So how? what was it like networking to get to so many networks? You know what, guys? That's the key word right there is network and relationships. You know, re- remember I said I started so early that um, there there really weren't options out there in women's basketball. There were you know, the, the one game on CBS and then ESPN started to pick up some more. And, and there were times when ESPN's inventory early on was 80 games. Well, I was already doing 80 by myself with all these different networks. So I just, um, I worked the relationships that I had. Uh, and then I relied on my work ethic to deliver a really strong product on the air. And, um, I knew no one was going to outwork me because that was just going to be my attitude. Um, and, uh, and I didn't want to leave any detail. And so, uh, you know, when I walk in the gym, I want the coaches and the players to know this is really important to me. They know that I'm, I'm going to be prepared. I am going to be fair and I'm going to have a lot of fun while I'm doing it. So if, if people see those three things from me or, or know those three things about me, then um, they'll know that, you know, I'm, I'm going to do a, a really good job to help somebody at home that maybe for the first time gets to see their kid on TV or a grandmother sitting there and the walk-on gets in and, and they never get to play. Uh, I, I want to make sure that I, I don't disrespect anybody that's a part of the game. And uh, I've always taken the attitude of this too, guys, that if you're, you know, if I'm working the for CBS on the men's tournament, first and second round, or if it's two teams that are in the last place of, um, of a smaller level league, uh, I'm going to deliver the same uh, product. I, I'm not going to shortchange anyone and because um, I, I respect the game and I respect the people in the game and the work ethic that's involved in the game way too much to ever do that. Well, let's talk about getting that call to the NCAA tournament on the men's side. Uh, I believe the first female yeah. analyst in over 20 years. And, and I know for you, I mean, you're you're great at this. You know the game. You can do it. But you have to take a certain sense of pride of, of being the first female analyst in over 20 years on the NCAA tournament games on the men's side. Well, first, let me say this. Anytime my name can stand next to Ann Myers in any sentence, um, that is a, a incredible honor for me. I have so much respect for Annie, and uh, I, I love her as a friend, and I love her as a mentor. Um you know, for the first 28 years of my career, I did not have any security. You know, you mentioned that I didn't have an agent. You know, I did work for a lot of different networks, uh, but I would have a fee for like a regional game or a fee for a national game, but there was no minimum number of games that uh, somebody would be required to hire me for. So, you know, I had to work and make sure that I, I stayed relevant, that I stayed competitive, and that I, I networked all those relationships the best I could. And then finally, 
uh, ESPN was gracious enough to give me a, a full-time staff position. And so uh, I, I was so excited to, to get my contract with them. And then it's just a few months after that that CBS called me and, and asked me if I could, you know, if I would be interested in being an analyst on the first and second round of the men's tournament. And I, I was driving at the time. I will tell you that I did put it in cruise control because I, I was, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that I, I heard uh, Ross Malloy from CBS and, and I knew exactly what Sean McManus uh, was was meaning when they wanted me to be the analyst. And uh, it, it is still the Super Bowl for me, guys. I mean, it's such a first-class organization. I can't thank ESPN and the management team enough for allowing knowing that I'm getting to do that. And uh, I certainly take it. Uh, I take it now as, um, you know, maybe the first year. I, I didn't even know. I've worked for CBS for so long. I called the, the one game of the year that they would do on network television for the women for 20 years. And I had no idea that they were actually looking at me for this option for the, the men's tournament. And so it was uh, very humbling and, and very exciting and still exciting today. And uh, I don't think they look at me as the female analyst anymore. I, I, I think they look at me as, as one of their analysts, and I'm proud to be a part of their team. On an earlier episode of the show, we were joined by Ian Eagle, and we asked him about his preparation prog- process for the first two rounds of the tournament, especially the first round more than anything, because you have four games, you have eight teams to prepare for, and you've already told us you love the preparation part of it. How did you get organized for that furious first day of four games? Yeah, so uh, the first year uh, uh, that I had the men's tournament in uh, Milwaukee, uh, I had eight teams that I had not had all season. So, you know, I primarily work in the ACC and the SEC on the men's side, and there weren't any ACC or SEC men's teams going to uh, Milwaukee. So that was a little um, challenging because I didn't get my assignment until midnight after selection show on that Sunday. And then I had a Tuesday show in Charlotte that was a women's NCAA preview show that I had to prepare for, plus travel Wednesday. Well, traveling Wednesday was the practice day. Thursday was, you know, Thursday, Saturday was my uh, site. So it was uh, it was a lot. It was a lot to get ready for. Um, I love to watch film, so I had to, you know, drink a lot of coffee during that time. I, I stayed up and uh, I did the best I could to prepare for those um those eight teams and uh it was awesome and then uh the second year i was in san diego and i had three of the eight teams i already had so i was familiar with with them and then um last the the uh the next year i was in hartford and i had a bunch of those teams as well so i, I feel like because my schedule now is almost 50 percent on the on the men's side for espn that i, I am better prepared uh, when the NCAA tournament rolls around and paying attention to not just all the women's uh, teams on the national side, but, but being uh, a lot more um, aware. I, I mean, John Rothstein with CBS has a great podcast. I listened to his two of his podcasts yesterday while I was walking the Charleston Bridge. So uh, I, I stay up on top of it all the time. It's, uh, it's definitely a labor of love, but there's not many off days around here. So I'm trying to stay on top of as much as I can to be ready. No doubt, and you always are. And for you, you not only have had the television experience, but also you've had some experience as an analyst on the radio side with Westwood One for the Final Four in the National Championship game. Uh, what have you liked about being on the radio as an analyst? Well, I, uh, the radio part of it is great because uh, the 
the only time I, I'm on the radio now is I get to call the women's final four for Westwood one and CBS radio and NCAA radio. And, uh, this year would have been 26 years, uh, that I've called the women's final four. Uh, it, it's so exciting to be there when the nets are getting cut down and the level of play is so great. And, you know, I, I'm, a, um, I consider myself a stakeholder in the women's game. So when I'm not doing TV at the final four, I'm doing radio. It allows me to do other things at the final four. I, I serve on several boards. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I participate in some of the educational stuff that the WBCA provides. So um, I, I'm pretty active at the Final Four. Plus, I like to hang out in the lobby and say hello to a lot of my friends. And I wouldn't be able to do that late night if I was on TV. <laughs> How about the, the technical side of doing radio as opposed to TV? Because TV is your medium. It's free-flowing. You can get replays. You can go in-depth to certain things. But radio, that same point that you made, say, in 20 seconds has to be cut down to 5 to 10 seconds on radio. How much of a challenge is that for you when you're calling the Final Four? Sure. Uh, I mean, uh, I like to think from the top of the key to the top of the key might be an opportunity for me to get something in. Um, if the team's pressing, maybe not. But uh, I have to be a lot briefer and a lot more succinct and straight to the point and it actually makes you better because you have to learn how to say more with less because you have less time and uh, i understand the medium for play-by-play on radio belongs to the the play-by-play person you know television is more um the analyst can go you can watch what's going on and you can take your point a little bit deeper but I also don't think that you have to have constant banter the whole time either. There's times where you can let the game breathe and, um, you know, let the effects take place. And, uh, you know, the, the one thing about radio is you are the eyes. On television, uh, you can talk less and let the director cut up some stuff that maybe you can't put any words to. So that's part of being a, a really good teammate is um, when you're on television is not over-talking and allowing the director to, to do their job as well. On radio, you have to be really succinct and get right to the point. And, um, you know, maybe, um, you know, be a little bit more direct, not as um, verbose in what you say. And we, we mentioned that you've worked for so many networks in your career. How tough is it to the adjustment of having to work with so many play-by-play partners because everybody's different, everybody's timing's different, pacing is different, everybody, some might talk a little bit more, some might talk a little bit less. So that adjustment, every time you work with somebody new, that that is something that's in the back of your mind, isn't it? Uh, It used to be, not anymore. I mean, I I feel like um, if I'm working for ESPN and there's somebody sitting next to me that is calling play-by-play, then they're really good, and they're really good at their job, and they understand their role and mine. You know, the one thing is I get get excited. You know, I try to think from a professional standpoint at the beginning of the game, let's let the play-by-play set things up. You know, I'm going to set up the story, some of the storylines to look for. Uh, But I I work with so many wonderful professionals, and I I can't even tell you how many different people I've worked with. Somebody asked me one day, um, I I don't even know if I could remember everyone that I have worked with over my career, but uh, I've always gotten along with my partners. Um, I think, uh, you know, that's part of being a a, a good teammate is you got to know your role. I consider everything that we do about team. Um, you guys know, you know, there might be two people in front of the camera, but there could be 30 people plus behind that are all doing their job and, and trying to make everything work so, you know, that everyone can smoothly appreciate and, and enjoy the telecast of a game. And uh, I mean, you know, I, I think it's always about the players. So 
um, I, I just want to be a good teammate all the time. And, you know, there, there's, um, I've never had any issues with any play-by-play people. We've always worked it out if there was. Uh, and I don't even remember one, honestly. I have worked with so many different people that you just have to learn their style. And, you know, some people want to jump out early and, and I'm, you know, need to know that's when I need to lay back. And I, I will say this, though, at the end of the game, though, when there is a significant call at the end, you know, every analyst knows they need to lay out and let the play-by-play have that. But I also believe that, you know, I, I'm also going to have time to set the strategy and give you some options about what could happen. And I think that's a, a really important time for an analyst to make sure that they've done their homework. They know some of the tendencies. They know what might happen. You know, they, they've watched the end of game scenarios and situational offense enough to know this could be an option. And that's what I try to do because I'm not in practice every day. So I don't want to coach somebody's team. I just want to provide some options for them at the end that they might consider from a strategy standpoint that the fans can can consider. We always talk about TV broadcasts as such a team effort. And you mentioned trying to be a good teammate as a color analyst. But again, from kind of where you sit, uh, what's most important for you with the play-by-play announcer for them to be a good teammate? What are things that play-by-play announcers can help in your eyes to make sure that everyone's working together and on the same page? Uh, I, I think... Um, you know, the, the play-by-play, I, I trust that my play-by-play uh, person will have the historical impact of something significant, right? If, if there's a milestone to be hit, there's sometimes I see things in notes that might be uh, this player needs, you know, 10 more points to be a thousand point scorer. You know, I might be aware of that, but I, I recognize that that person as a play-by-play would probably have the call on that. And when that happens, you know, I, I, I'm not really worried about thinking that they're going to miss it. I, I believe they're going to get it. Uh, and when you go back on social media and you watch the call of a person, you know, achieving a milestone, you usually hear the play-by-play per- person's voice. Um, I, I think that's really um, something I don't really worry about that much. Just the whole setup of the who and the what. Um, and then I, I hope they're relying on me for the strategy, for the breakdown. Uh, I like to say, think that if, if you go a whole broadcast, um, you don't have to ask me any questions. You don't have to set me up. Um, I, I'm, we're going to be fine, and it's just going to seamlessly come together in conversation just because, you know, um, I've been doing it for a long time, and I'm sure that if you ask a play-by-play that work with me, there's probably some tendencies that I have that they know that they're going to get when uh, they work with me also. So um, I think just being a good teammate, trying not to step on each other, letting it breathe a little bit, knowing that they got the milestones and the who and the what, and them understanding that I'm going to have the how and the why. And uh, I think it creates a really good listen. Well, anytime I've been in a three-person booth as the play-by-play announcer, I'm always trying to make sure that both analysts are happy and being heard. As someone that's been on the other side of that, as an analyst, just how do you try to figure out some of those rhythms of a three-person booth when you are having a game like that? Uh, when I've worked in a three-person booth, sometimes we predetermine in advance, you know, that you're going to take the replays for Team A and, and I'll take the replays for Team B. Uh, or, um, you know, somebody might have... Uh, you know, want to be a really good uh, defensive scheming person who can talk about defense and I can talk about offense. Sometimes that's where the body language comes into play. You know, I've been known to post up and throw a few elbows, you know, during the game um, just because I get excited and I, I start, you know, watching the game and get lost in, in the excitement of the game. Um, 
you know, I, I always feel, I feel the same way. You know, you don't have to set me up or ask questions. I think it will just seamlessly roll together. I've always really believed that. And I try not to worry about it. Um, if you're worried about how many words you say or your ego inside of broadcasting, you're not going to be a good teammate. And so I, I, I don't worry about those things. And as play-by-play people, most of the time, we're just looking at the ball because for us, that's the most important thing. But for you, I'm sure you're looking at three or four things at one time in one given half-court set. How much are you looking at on the floor one given time as an analyst? You know what, Kyle? That's a great point because being at home and just calling the game off the monitor, there's a lot of subtleties inside the gym that you miss, the body language of a coach or a player, um, you know, just some things that I recognize across the court that I instinctively look for, um, those things that, you know, that you missed. Um, you know, uh I think, um, I think, uh, you know, that, that t- well, tell me what your question was again. I'm sorry. Tell, I, I got how thinking many, about last yeah. night's game. <laughs> <laughs> how many things are you looking at during the possession? Because I know, like, as play-by-play people, we're looking at the ball, and that's essentially it, because we don't really have the knowledge to see everything else that's going on for the most part. So how much are you looking at at, at any given possession? Yeah, so uh, thank you for repeating that. I'm looking at everything off the ball as well. I'm looking at how a person gets open. I'm looking at why a coach might want to sub. So I'm watching the body language of of a coach on the other side. I'm thinking, okay, this team's going on an 8-0 run. Are they really going to call a timeout? Do they need a timeout? How close are we to the media timeout? What kind of veteran team do they have? You know, Is this something that they might call a timeout or let it play out? Uh, There's also... um, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, all those things that are off the ball, but I'm also thinking ahead, like a couple of possessions ahead. You know, I'm always intrigued by now that we on the women's side can advance the ball, the WNBA, you can advance the ball in the last minute. Is that something that a coach really wants to do? You don't automatically have to do it. You know, is it better to use the full court to get a downhill uh, into, you know, whatever your set is? I was watching the NBA playoffs and they called timeout to advance the ball, yet they inbounded in the back court so donovan mitchell could get a full head of steam coming right at the defender so there's um you know lots of things and strategies to look for and some of that instinctively i just would look across to see if i could hedge a bet or give somebody at home something to think about or look for um you know i I mean we'd all like to be in, in basketball sort of like the tony romo to predict plays but you know, there are certain things that you can predict if you've watched enough film and you know the tendencies and you could pick up some cues from body language from across the floor. So I, I'm assessing the whole thing. And, you know, to your very first question about challenges, that's one thing from being at home with a TV monitor and watching the game like people on their couch that you miss that you instinctively, you know, would have picked up on some things. Now, I, I'll give you an example of, of something that happened this year. And I I didn't go with my instinct on it, and and now I will. So I had a WNBA game earlier this year where Atlanta was playing, and I think they were playing New York. Actually, I know they were playing New York. Atlanta, it was inside a minute. Atlanta inbounded the ball. Courtney Williams got the ball. New York went to trap her. She dribbled towards the sideline. They called timeout because they were going to turn the ball over. We go to break. We come back from break. And Atlanta has advanced the ball. Well, I hit my talk back to my producer and I said, how come Atlanta's advancing the ball? They dribbled 
and they called timeout because they were in a trap. Unless they called another timeout, they should not be allowed to advance the ball. They should have to inbound it right at that spot, plus eight seconds in the backcourt, plus whatever's less on the 24-second shot clock, right? So I went with my inst- my instinct was, wait a second, they're not supposed to advance the ball there. The officials might have screwed up, and somebody on the other bench didn't catch it. So I let it go because I thought, okay, well, I'm not there. Something must have happened in break. We don't have that kind of communication like we would have on site. And uh, they knew, um, Atlanta advanced the ball. They ran a play. They ended up winning the game. It could have been a play late in the game that could have mattered. And so um, I checked with the uh, supervisor of officials, and I found out, you know, after asking the question that sh- – that they were not supposed to advance the ball. And I was kind of like, dang it, I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> but I, did, I didn't go with it because I, I didn't want to be, I wasn't sure if the officials, you know, I, I wasn't trying to kill the officials. I wasn't trying to kill New York or Atlanta. I wasn't 100% sure, so I let it go. And now I sit at home going, dang. My instinct was why did, they should not have been able to advance the ball. And I wish I had fallen on my instinct. But I didn't want to be disrespectful to anybody that was at the site. And, of course, that's part of the challenge of not being there. So that was um, a really great piece of strategy or catch that, um, you know, as an analyst, you want to be able to, you know, say that, you know, you got something right because people at home are only picking at what you got wrong. So, you, you, you know, you never hear anybody say, oh, well, that was you, get, you got that right. Usually it's like, oh, you, you, you know, you, you screwed this up. You guys know how that goes. So oh, yeah. you got to stay, you know, right in the middle. But uh, it was an opportunity to, to teach something in the game that I should have gone with my instinct. And um, I didn't. And I deferred. And uh, in the next situation, next time, I probably would bring it up. And you mentioned uh, being critical and, and criticism on the air of coaches, student athletes, players, whether they're professional or collegiate athletes. How do you toe that line of making sure you don't step over that line where it's it's a it's a criticism that's based in fact, but you're not harping on it. You're not you're not putting them in a bad light. How do you toe that line? Because I'm sure you've had instances in which you've had to do that. Well, you certainly don't want to pick on somebody. That's for sure. Uh, That would be really disrespectful. And if you remember, I said I'm not in practice every day. So. Um, I want to rely on all the film that I've watched, all the preparation that I've done, um, the work that I've put in, uh, the years of experience, and try to offer a teaching moment if I can, uh, or give an option for something to consider. You know, it could be uh, at the end of the game, you know, I've seen the team call timeout to advance the ball, but there have been other times where this coach, because they had a speed advantage in a particular matchup, elected not to call timeout to advance the ball. That might be something that I would say. Or, you know, why didn't they foul? You know, what? there's got to be a reason why they didn't foul in that situation. Or, you know, did they go for the trap and they didn't foul? Too much time went off the clock. You know, there's situations where you use those as teaching, not to beat anybody up, but to try to offer an option for the, the viewer at home to consider or something that, you know, I, I learned, a, I learned a lot of basketball from listening to other analysts. Um, and so, um, I, I always temper, uh, maybe some vernacular or some way to look at the game, uh, through the lens of something, someone else too. So, uh, it's a delicate balance, but you also, um, 
you know, you have to do your job as the journalist on the game. So you have to protect the game and you got to make sure that you're not picking on someone. Um, and I, I always, I always have this attitude too, guys. I'll tell you this, right. As, as long as I've been in the game, I always think this, the coaches, I, I'm not smarter than any coach that's over there on the other side of the floor. So if you think you're smarter, then it's probably going to lead you to being very negative or derogatory. And I don't think I'm smarter than anybody on the other side. So, and I'm not in practice every day. So there's got to be a reason why they did what they just did. Now it's my challenge to figure it out or ask them later. You know, that that's, that's something that I, I might write down and, and maybe not right at that moment, but later on, I might ask a coach a piece of strategy about why they did this or that. Or I have a couple of people that I go to that I call um, the people that I go to when I think I have a question that as the act expert, I should already know. And if I don't know the answer to that, then, you know, I have a coach today that I'm going to have a call with. And one of the things I want to know is when you're executing your offense on the lane line, is that considered considered the middle middle third of the floor? Or are you considering that to be on the side? Because I think it's considered the middle of the floor. But you think about it, where the lane line extended is, you know. So that's just a little detail, but it's something that you know resonates with me, and I, I want to know: is that the middle of the floor, or do you consider that to be the third? You certainly can't ice any ball screening action from right there because you open up the lane line. So I, I'm that's a piece of strategy that I, I'm interested in. I'm going to find the, out the answer today. Well, that's part of your continuing education in basketball, always trying to learn more. And I imagine that goes with officials too, right? I mean, over the years, you've been able to see a lot of officials. We always see them come to the broadcast table and say hello to you before the game begins. But uh, what do you really learn from officials? And do you, are you, do you have an opportunity to really talk with them in depth about certain things, maybe away from the court? Oh, I, I think... Um the officials are a really unique group. Um, they hold themselves to a very high level of accountability inside their own teamwork. Like they can go in at halftime and rip each other for missing calls. And they have a lot of tough skin. They think, you know, we think the fans get on them. Well, they get on each other pretty, pretty hard. They hold each other to a very high standard. Um, I do attend the NCAA regional officiating clinics every year on the men and the women's side. You know, the men's and the women's rules can be so significantly different, and I don't understand why the rules have to be so different. Uh, even the terminology and the vernacular, some of it is just, you know, is it the lower defensive box in play here or is it not? Oh, wait a second. The men's game? No. Okay, so the women's game. Okay, so is that, does the restricted area come into play? Uh, what about the principle of verticality inside the restricted area? Okay, so you can't screw that up, right? You got to know. Um, and, and, those things are challenging to deal with, uh, but I think the uh, the officials work really hard. There's a lot of education in the off season. The only thing I would say about um, the officials is I know how hard they work and I know how uh, much they hold each other to a, um, a high level of accountability. I just wish sometimes they would tell the coaches that they do that because the coaches don't always see it that way. And as much money as conferences spend on educating officials and trying to put the right people on the floor and the right mix of people on the floor, it, it's a whole other world out there in officiating. And I know how hard they work. And so uh, I, I don't mind asking any questions at any time uh, about certain situations. And, you know, when you've been um, around the game as long as I have, there's a lot of officials that have been around the game a long time, too. And, and they know 
that uh, we're all trying to get it right. And they certainly are trying to get it right. So I want to make sure that I can share the right rules. And I am strongly opinionated about some rules that I do and don't like. And I don't mind saying that on the air. Um, But, you know, some people don't like it. You know, there's a lot of times that uh, because my schedule is about 50-50 that there'll be a rule that I'll say, you know, well, the rule on the men's side is this, but on the women's side, it's this. And there's a lot of people that don't like when I do that. But I think the fan needs to know. And there's a lot of fans. If we want to cross over and get more of that 18 to 35-year-old male demographic that's watching the NBA, then you need to clarify what the rule is because they're not going to understand it. And you're just helping educate the fan. Yeah, and as somebody that goes back and forth between announcing men's games and women's games, I wish we had the quarters format in men's basketball. Are you going to help get that push across coming up soon for yeah, men's I, basketball? <laughs> I don't I don't know. Um, you know, if, if the answer is commercial inventory to sell the game, then I'm fine with it. But I don't know what the other answer is. So I do think there are um, a lot of guys that would like to have the quarters i think there's a lot of guys that like to advance the ball um you know the the game is so good college men's basketball is so good having more opportunities for two for ones and situational offense i i just think that would be really exciting um on for the coaches i think the coaches would really enjoy it um so well, i don't know we'll see it's it's the last holdout you know and all of basketball. It's just the last holdout. <laughs> Certainly is. And then you mentioned you've been having some time in the offseason to really have deeper, extended conversations. And I even remember when I was a student at Tennessee, every now and then I would see you at Thompson Bowling Arena in the spring or the summer with Coach Summit and her staff. And you had to like opportunities like that to travel around the country some and get to visit with coaching staffs and players without having the pressure of a game that night and just really get to see them more in their element, don't you? Well, Roger, you're you're talking about one of my great friends, right? I mean, uh, I mean, I miss Pat uh, as much as everyone else. She was so much fun to be around, and you know, I have such wonderful stories about my time with her, uh, and you know what it took for me to get inside her friendship circle, if you will. I mean, it took a while to do that because she tested me. I mean, she challenged me, and you know, I can remember times when uh, she would call me because she didn't like something I said. And uh, I, I really respect it. You know, we would have a conversation about it. There's, um, you know, as long as I've been around the game, I've always told coaches, if you hear something that I said that you don't like or you disagree with, then just pick up the phone and call me. You know, let's talk about it because, you know, if I'm wrong, I'll correct it. Um, I, I have no problem correcting a, a mistake that I make because social media is going to correct it anyway if, if you really screwed it up. So. You know, I, I think I owe that to the game and to the players and to the coaches. But um, there's there's times when, man, Pat ripped me a couple of times, and, and it, it was great. I mean, it's a great story now. Uh, but, uh, you know, that, that having that relationship, working camp, being in the gym, trying to pick up vernacular, uh, sticking your nose in, that FaceTime thing that you do where you're around, I think the coaches really respect it. You know, I know um, I know the difference between somebody sitting in a shoot around on their phone or on their computer versus somebody who's sitting there listening and trying to pick up some subtlety about a game plan or listening to a coach teach a concept. Uh, there's a big difference. And so 
you know, if, if you're out there and you're a young broadcaster and you're listening right now, don't be sitting and shoot around doing your boards. You know, don't be sitting and shoot around just spending your whole time talking to the SID. You know, I, I pretty much, I mean, I'll ask the SID a couple of questions, but I, I might sit by myself. Uh, I want to be away from the, the chatter. Uh, I want to listen to what the coaches are saying. I think that's how you can really develop some credibility inside the game and show that you really are interested and truly engaged in what's going on on the floor. And I've done that as a practice for a long time, and I'm going to continue doing that because I really do learn, and I want to learn. I, I don't, like I said, uh, I'm not smarter than any coach that's in, in, in the game. And you mentioned going to shoot around and getting information there. What specific parts of shoot around are you looking closely at when they do their scout segment or maybe even something like energy in the layup lines and how the captain of the team is is trying to display her energy to the rest of the team? What, what kind of things are you looking for in that atmosphere? Yeah, exactly, Kyle. All those things. Uh, I like to work in threes. So if I can come away from an experience with three things, what are three things that happened in shoot around today that might help me with the game plan? What are three things about somebody's body language that I might have picked up? You know, just whatever those three things are, I try to keep those uh, in, in front of me. You know, here in the home studio, I have, um, you know, I have um, an easel that's full of all the uh, the um, bigger than basketball issues inside the WNBA and all the things that the players and their platform about social justice are 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 using their voices together to help the game and to help people in our society. And then I have another board where I have um, I have three or four things written down for a game plan that I might have picked up in the notes or something that I definitely want to, you know, make sure that I talk about in the game that would lead me to another concept or conversation. Uh, so I, I think about threes. You only need three. You can come up with three things. You know, what are three reasons why this team could win the game? What are three things this player might need to do um that's plenty and if you can come up with those three things from each team out of shoot around then that always makes me feel like i'm you know better prepared to take this ball screen defense concept that they're going to be working on and that they spent 20 minutes working on in practice because of personnel on the other side uh then you know how can i telestrate that how can i be prepared to hit talk back when that play happens that they just ran so i could say hold that play i want to draw it or draw, that's usually what I say. Any producers know that I just hit the talk back and go, draw, and they know, just cue it up. Don't even show it to me. You know, I, I, I want to draw that play coming out of break, or I want to draw that play on a dead ball. You know, there's something I want to circle or highlight. I want to, you know, bring some attention to something. I, I love that part of it. That part is really interesting to me. And now if you look behind you, you have the 24 hours of nothing but net. And I, oh. and I know you've done the 24-hour free throw shooting marathon, which is for South Carolina Special Olympics, a cause that's near and dear to your heart. Can you tell us about what that, that cause means to you and how that came about? Yes, uh, I am so um, pleased to tell you about it. Thank you for asking. Uh, my, I have three boys. My middle son, Frankie, is smart and handsome and athletic and He's a senior at Clemson in the Clemson Life Program, and he happens to have Down syndrome. It doesn't define who he is. It's just a part of who he is. And that's pretty much been our attitude. And um, he's been a, he's an incredible athlete. He's won gold medals in multiple sports. Um, he even helped me win a gold medal as a unified partner in golf one time. We played an alternate shot, and uh, we killed it. I mean, he was great. So, um, you know, I, I have a, a 
I'm on five nonprofit boards, but Special Olympics is not one of them. And uh, I, uh, you guys may recall, there were six summers in a row in July where every day in July I'd make 115 footers, and it was sort of my advocacy for players get outside. It's 100 degrees in Charleston. You know, my feet are on fire uh, from being on the concrete. Uh, but I'm going to go out there and make shots, and I'm going to try to encourage other players. Get out there and shoot. You know, just old school it <laughs> outside. And um, then I started thinking, how could I monetize my um, ability to shoot the ball? And I thought it, it, it all came down to this. Uh, 24 hours, uh, I make 100 free throws on the top of every hour for 24 hours. The first year I was in a gym. Uh, we raised $85,000 and I shot 94% for the 24 hours. I did sleep 15 minutes. This year, because of COVID, we couldn't go into gym. And so I really wanted to do the fundraiser, even though I had many sleepless nights thinking about, you know, is economically where our country is, are people going to be willing to give, um, you know, obviously, um, you know, the state of affairs that we were dealing with. And so I decided, you know what, uh, it's, if you gave me a penny for every free throw I make, it's $24. So certainly people could give me $24. I'm, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to do it in my driveway. I'm going to give it a try. The training uh, is really tough, you know, for me. But uh, this year uh, we raised $125,000, which puts us over 210 for two years. And I shot 89% in the driveway through some elements, and I was not pleased. Um, I think I can do much better than that. But I want to tell you a quick story about it because I haven't shared this story anywhere else, so I'm going to give it to you guys first. Uh, the way we got over $125,000, my husband and I with my son Frankie, we were going up to the first tee at Bulls Bay, and we got to the first tee, and there was a group in front of us, and Mark Bryan from Hootie and the Blowfish jumps out of the cart and you know my son Frankie's buddies with the band and Darius Rucker and Mark makes a big deal about Frankie and Bill Murray got out of the other side of the golf cart and so I had never met Bill Murray and so uh, I said Mr. Murray I I've always wanted to meet you uh, my name is Debbie Antonelli he said I know you I know you you're the free throw girl and I was like <laughs> he knew he said, I've been watching. I, I've seen you on TV. I know all about it. Uh, I said, I know your son, Luke. Um, Luke Murray is an assistant on Chris Mack's staff at Louisville. He said, yeah, I know all about that. Luke has already talked to me about you. I, I'm, I'm all aware. He said, um, he just, he met Frank. He talked to Frank. He just, he said, how many free throws did you make? I said, oh, I made 2,400. He said, well, that's what you get. And he whipped out a check and wrote a check for $2,400 handed it to me and that put us over 125. Wow. wow. That is a that, great story. Uh, I get chills thinking about it. Um, so $210,000 in two years and I'm already planning for next year. Uh, I'm, eventually one day I'm going to have somebody in every state shooting on the same weekend doing the same thing that I'm doing raising money for their respective state. I think I might have I mean, don't hold me to it, but I think I have four shooters in four different states for next year. If I could stick with those four with mine and we, we get started that way, then uh, I think this could become or my vision would be for it to become something similar to what Special Olympics does with the torch run. 
And uh, I think this could be a, a really great opportunity to continue raising money. I can just tell you during COVID how, uh, I mean, if you felt isolated, think about the population of the Special Olympic athletes. We need the money for programming. And that was ultimately what motivated me besides the motivation that I have just from my son, Frankie, and what an incredible young man he is to be around. Um, that, I, I, you know, at my age, I'm getting AARP mail and I'm out in the driveway shooting free throws. So I don't know what these kids' excuses are. <laughs> That's a really good point. What a great story as well with Bill Murray and uh, great that he was able to donate to the cause like that. Uh, as we go out the door, uh, we've already mentioned uh, one of my early influences and in Pat Summit when I was in school. I got to cover uh, her last two national championship teams, but now Kyle and I continue to work in SEC women's basketball. Me with Alabama with Christy Curry and then him with Florida with Cameron Newbauer. Do you have any Christy Curry or Cameron Newbauer stories to give us on the way out the door? <laughs> Well, I, I've known Christy for a long time. Uh, I just talked to her the other day, actually. Um, you know, and Cam, of course, uh, all those years with Andy on his staff at Georgia. I mean, the SDC has such great people, um, such good coaches, a really good product. Uh, I'm not going to give you anything specific except for Christy and I one time in New Orleans pretended like uh, we were running away from the police on Bourbon Street uh, during a KYAL cancer fund. <laughs> Uh, walk. There was we were bringing up the back of the the bringing up the back of the the progression up the uh, Bourbon Street to where we were hosting the K Yao uh, party. And I said, let's pretend like the police are chasing us. It was just a funny thing uh, that she probably will not appreciate me telling. Um, and then uh, you know, I, but Christy, I, I mean, Christy's got daughters that are the same age as my kids. Um, usually, when I talk to Christy, it's not always about basketball, but. Uh, I had the Alabama men this year, and while I was in town, uh, Christy and I met up for coffee at Starbucks downtown, uh, and um, I, I enjoy her so much. And Cam, of course, he, he's going to get it going. It will be just a matter of time. Uh, he's too good, and he, he does such a great job. He's got such an infectious, infectious personality. Uh, that league is tough. The Power Five leagues are really hard to win in. They're really hard. Um, every league is tough, and uh, it's only getting better. It's only getting better on the women's side. So I appreciate everything that you guys do to promote the game and to, you know, tell your own respective stories in your own communities about how good your teams are. And I'm really looking forward to Jordan Lewis this year. I think she's going to have a big year. Yeah, we're certainly excited to see her back on the floor. I know the Gators have a lot of talent as well. So Kyle and I always look forward to our matchups against each other and in the SEC tournament. And then we look forward to seeing you as well uh, down the road, Debbie. This has been a tremendous hour, giving you a lot of insights for the first time from the color analyst perspective. We've had so many play-by-play -play announcers, but we thank you for bringing the color analyst role kind of onto our show today. We really appreciate it. You guys are great. Keep doing what you're doing. Stay healthy. Wear your mask. You know, I'll see you during college basketball. We will have college basketball this year, and I can't wait to see you guys. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you to Debbie Antonelli, and thanks to all of you for watching Broadcaster Hour.